Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Minds seminar series. The series was produced by the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies as part of Victoria University of Wellington's 125th anniversary celebrations. Rebellious Minds explores episodes of dissent, nonconformity, critical thinking and eccentricity from across the university's history, aspiring to highlight stories of rebellion in political, social and cultural life. My name is Stephen Loveridge, and in this session I'm speaking with Max Nicol on the subject of his MA thesis, An Organ of Student Opinion, which examines the history of Salient Magazine, a long-running piece of student media and a ubiquitous feature of life on campus. Max, today we're going to focus on your chapter on the 1980s and how Salient approached and presented the issues of that era. But first, let's set the table. Every thesis has an origin story. My first question is, what exactly put you on this path? Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose uh, when I finished my honours honors degree at the end of 2017, I knew that I wanted to do a master's in history. Um, I'd really enjoyed my honours year and I was sort of tossing up a few different possibilities um, for my master's thesis. And I knew that I wanted there to be an oral history component to the research. Uh, I'd, I'd really, really enjoyed Sibel Locke's honors paper on on the methodology and the and the, and the theory of oral, oral history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that I wanted that to be a part of the thesis. So that was sort of, you know, uh, immediately I had to set about finding a topic where the people who um, could potentially contribute to an oral history um, would be both, you know, still alive and um, available, um, you know, within New Zealand. And so I was sort of tossing up a couple of different possibilities and, and um, you know, they, none of them were really sort of clicking for me. And I, so I started sort of thinking about some advice I'd received from a number of people, which is, you know, a master's is a, a year of your life. You need to do something that you are confident is going to be interesting to you or meaningful enough to you that it's going to sustain your interest for, for that whole period. So I sort of started thinking about things that I, you know, have always thought were interesting and kind of um, uh, could be interesting to me at, at a personal level. And the way I sort of settled on it was I, you know, I just always really enjoyed reading Salient when I was an undergraduate student. And when I was an honours student, I really liked the mixture of kind of amateur writing, you know, people sort of giving it a go for the first time of, of a particular style of writing and writing about, you know, particular topics that, that student media tends to be interested in. Some of that writing is really good and some of it is not so good. And that's sort of the nature of the beast. It's, you know, people are finding their voice and trying stuff out. And that always really appealed to me um, and, and it's something that I really liked about Salient. Um, and so I sort of started to be uh, curious, you know, is, has anyone really written about the history of student media in New Zealand in particular, but also just generally? And so I, I got a few books out, um, mostly about <clears throat> sort of about Vic and about um, the history of USA as well and, and other universities in New Zealand. Um, there's a number of, of published um, records of universities and also students associations. Um, and the thing that I kind of noticed was that all of these um, uh, existing histories of, of university and university life sort of treat student magazines as a source to illustrate something about the student association or about the Victoria, uh, sorry, about the university itself rather than sort of treating them as, um, you know, publications in their own right, which maybe have their own priorities and their own interests and, and their own direction. And so I was really sort of curious to um, to explore it from that perspective. It's, you know, Salient and other student magazines are not just records of what happened on campus or, or what um, 
uh, things that affected students, but they sort of have their own direction in terms of the the politics and the um, interests that they um, interrogate um, in their writing. And so I sort of wanted to approach it from that perspective of this is a contribution to the print landscape of New Zealand, not just to um, the history and the record of universities. And so that was sort of how I ended up approaching this topic from the angle that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really happy with that decision because I, you know, it sort of um, gave me a lot of a lot of fodder to, you know, find interesting people to talk to um, for the oral history component. But it also meant that the um, source material was, was very interesting to me and it, and it felt like I was doing something that was quite novel um, and that hadn't really been done, particularly in New Zealand. But even in, in um, sort of the international context, I could find very little about student media and sort of the function that it plays. And so, you know, it felt like I'd found something that was both interesting to me, but also was going to make a, um, an interesting contribution to the history of print in New Zealand. And so, yeah, it was um, it was a, a good thing to land on, I think. Excellent. Yes, you have to be careful what you end up reading. Um, for my own, since I, I once read a novel and ended up doing a, a master's on the same subject <laughs> and then found myself doing a doctorate. And then sort of 10 years later, you know, I've written a few books on that. So who knows where this will take you uh, in the future, Max? Most historians get a particularly wistful gleam in their eye, and I think listeners can probably hear it in your voice when discussing their source work and methodology. Uh, I imagine your work must have involved reviewing masses of magazines, and as we've just heard, also talking to some people involved. Can you describe exactly what your research entailed and what it was like pouring through salience from another age? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, obviously one of the uh, most difficult parts was just reading a you know a huge volume of of material, but it was also the thing that was obviously what drew me to it in the first place. You know, I, I don't know if I'm the person who's read the most issues of Salient in the world, but I think I'd probably be pretty up high up the leaderboards um, because I you know I didn't read every single issue. I sort of uh, very wisely my supervisor encouraged me to sort of take a more of a sampling methodology to sort of cut down the amount of um, uh, material I had to get through. And I won't yep. bore you with the details of, of how I arrived at the particular sampling methodology that I deployed. Um, mm-hmm. But I felt pretty confident that it was like a, it was a good uh, cross-section of everything that Salient reported on. And, you know, it ended up being like a real a real godsend because I think trying to get through every single issue of, of Salient was w- would have been a pretty gargantuan task because, um, you know, even with sort of cutting out a, a certain amount of material, you know, it was still dozens and dozens of issues of Salient. And, and I sort of kept the database of every single article that I, uh, that I read. And it ended up being about, you know, just over 2000 articles that I read, took notes on and categorized according to different topics. And so I essentially, you know, start from the cover, describe the cover, um, and then for each distinct article within each issue, I would just, yeah, take some notes, record who had written it, categorize it according to, you know, is this um, is this relating to uh, trade unionism or is this tra- relating to um, feminist issues or um, or is this campus news, et cetera, et cetera. And so that sort of built up this, this big database of stuff that I could search through to find patterns and to find trends in, in what Salient was interested in within a particular year. And so it ended up being, yeah, quite, a, quite an effective way to do it. But um, it was also just like a lot of fun. Like, I mean, with 2000 articles, not everything made its way into the thesis. You know, you always have to yeah. leave something on the cutting room fo- cutting room floor. But, you know, there's all sorts of just like weird little um, in-jokes and um, cartoons and, uh, you know, sort of funny satirical stuff and, and stuff that was clearly put in at the last minute just to fill out the fill out the page that they had to had to finish, um, at, you know, 11 o'clock on a Friday or whatever. Um, and so there's all sorts of these little ephemeral 
uh, bits of stuff that were just like a lot of fun to read, even if they didn't actually have a lot of usefulness to the overall themes of the thesis. It was just, you know, um, it was a lot of fun to sort of, you could sort of see in real time how it was being put together and the sense of humor of the people doing it. And so, you know, it did feel a little bit like I was sort of getting to know the people writing and, you know, what their interests were and, and you know, what they thought was funny or what they thought was um, important. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed um, sort of seeing some of the some of the ways that Salient is, is the same as it is now, but also obviously it was writing into a very different political context in the mm. in the decades that I was looking at. And also just the, the nature of the production was very different. And so, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that component of it. And of course, you know, I found a lot of um, really wonderful people who were willing to talk to me for the oral history element of Salient, you know, former editors, former contributors who, who brought a lot to the thesis. So um, mm. once I had sort of built up enough of the source base from Salient itself, I sort of went out to these people, asked mm -hmm. if I could have some of their time to, to clarify a few things and get their perspective on on what their priorities were and, and have that complement and enrich the, the source base. Excellent. I, I think we will assume that uh, you're top of the leaderboard for reading Salient, unless we hear <laughs> otherwise. Uh, who did you talk to? Let's let's call some people out. Sure. Yeah. And no, I, I spoke to a few former um, editors. Uh, Roger Steele and mm -hmm. Peter Franks were the editors in 1973, and then Roger Steele was the sole editor in 1974. I spoke to both of them. I spoke to Simon Wilson, who was the editor. Um, in the late 1970s, the, the particular year escapes me, but um, he was involved with the magazine for a number of for a number of years. And some contributors, I spoke to some people who contributed in the early 1980s um, who weren't editors, but who did sort of contribute a lot of content and, and were sort of part of the general makeup of Salient during that time. And um, some of the editors from the mid-1980s as well. So I spoke to seven people all up and they all sort of brought you know, a slightly different perspective and, a, and a, 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 some useful insights and useful reflections on um, on their time at Salient. And that, that really brought a lot, you know, in, in ways big and small in terms of like the analysis, um, but also just in terms of giving a sort of a bit of a personal character to, um, to the thesis. And, um, you know, if there was anything that I was unsure of, even if they couldn't remember the precise details of, you know, something that had happened in some cases, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they were able to sort of um, clarify sort of how they arrived at particular um, particular strains of reporting or um, you know what they thought of, of particular events in the time so it brought a lot I mean I really really enjoyed um, uh, speaking to them about about their time at salient and um, they were really really generous with their with their time and with their recollections and um, their insights so it was um it was a really good thing to do I think the thesis would have been a lot weaker if um, if I hadn't been able to speak to those people Right. I mean, some of the names you mentioned as well have uh, found a future in books and publishing as well. So who knows what path salient put people on? Oh, uh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. One quality I really enjoyed about your thesis was a certain um, critical affection in your handling of material. You, you seem to have a willingness to uh, put things under the microscope, to take them apart, to look at them as a good scholar needs, but also you know, a certain appreciation of this material as artifacts of its own time and uh, products of particular people and circumstances. What do you like most or admire most about the salient of yesteryear and what do you think has changed for the better? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I like I like the phrase of use there, critical critical affection. I think it's a really good way to put it. Um mm. you know, I like I said, I've sort of felt like I came to know these people, um, rightly or wrongly, you know, just from um just from reading a lot of their content and sort of getting a sense of um who they are through that 
means, but also through meeting them and corresponding with them in relation to the oral history interviews. And so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't I didn't want to be overly critical, but I didn't I also didn't necessarily want to just um take everything that was published in Salient for granted and and not sort of um have some critical assessment of, you know, if they're reporting on this thing, is, does that mean that they're not reporting on something else? And if they're reporting on a particular topic, what what angle do they have in that? What perspective do they have in that? And you know, what what might what might they be missing? I suppose. And what criticisms were were made of the um of the magazine at the time, and how were those handled, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I didn't want to totally leave that out. Um, uh, but the thing I think that I really found that I admired about the people back then, and frankly, the people who, who work on Salient now, is that I think the people just are very, very dedicated to producing a good product. Um, you know, Salient sort of runs on the smell of an oily, oily rag. And so the people who were, in, you know, there week in, week out, um, were just trying to put together, I think, the best magazine that they could um, in relatively tight time constraints. And they were writing about things that they thought were important and that, that they wanted students to care about or that they thought students might be interested in. So I really, really admired the sort of the dedication. You know, it's it is a labor of love a lot of the time um, in student media. You know, no one. You know, I, I talk in the thesis that basically no one got paid except for the editor and the technical editor. Right. And there was a little bit of petty cash sort of floating around, and if someone had happened to contribute a particularly large contribution to one or one or another issue, they might get you know five bucks or something. But certainly everyone was sort of like doing it uh, because they really wanted to, and because they thought it was interesting, and because they thought it was important. So I really admired that about you know how it was put together. In terms of what I think has changed for the better, I think that. You know, it's, it's almost stating the obvious, but I think that it's a, it's worth stating is that Salient these days, I think, is much more diverse. Um, you know, the, the first woman who edited Salient was, I think, in 1942. Um, and the next editor who was a woman was not until 1984. And so for a long time, it was sort of like a lot of Pākehā men editing Salient. Um, and I think that was probably partly a reflection of the... Um, of the student body at the time um but i think that one thing that i think salient even in the time that i was a student um has grown into is um having a lot more uh diversity of opinion and uh, diversity of background in terms of who's contributing to it who's editing it and and whose perspectives are sort of represented um and i think that's like really embedded in um in the sort of the calendar of issues i suppose um you know they're is every year there's Te Ao Marama, which is sort of a guest edited issue um, from a Maori's perspective. There's One Solwara, which is like from a Pacifica perspective, and there's Quilian, which is an you know LGBTQ plus perspective. And those are, from what I understand, essentially um, part and parcel of um, the product every single year. And so those are sort of non-negotiable that there are these sort of these guest edited issues in which um, the editor sort of gives over quite a lot of power to um, other uh, groups on campus to sort of Take the take the magazine in the direction that they want to take it, and that they would like to see, um, you know, their communities communities and their perspective um, represented, which I think is like a really good thing because it sort of it means that you get a lot of um, uh, really rich um, writing about those things that is from uh, a very sincere and a very authentic place. And so I think that's something that I think is is really to be admired is the the commitment to that kind of sharing of power. You know, it's sort of it's meant to be a a publication that belongs to students, that represents students. And so I think that's like a really good way to embed in the practice of, of putting Salient together, um, you know, those those ideals. Excellent. If I could circle back to an earlier point you made, you mentioned that a master's is a year of your life. 
Now, some of the people listening to this will be quite familiar with that. Uh, some may be contemplating it, and some might be interested in knowing exactly what um, that means. But if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, I had a bit of a think about this. I, I was sort of, I learned a lot of lessons from my honours thesis, mm -hmm. which I had a very, very stressful run up to to finishing. And, you know, it did get finished and I was happy with my grade, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, a total disaster, but it was a very stressful experience. And so I took a lot from, uh, from that experience. And the main thing that I tried to put into practice when I was writing my thesis was, you know, you need to start writing from day one which is not necessarily what I ended up doing. So I think that would be the piece of advice I um, would give myself is that you need to start writing as soon as you can. You know, I think mm -hmm. I probably, even having learned that from my honours year that you need to start writing very, very early because I certainly find that I, I articulate my ideas and, and um, develop them through writing them. Although I sort of knew that, I still put it off for maybe a little bit longer than I, than I should have. And um, I think that the uh, upshot of that is that you know when I read the thesis now I think oh I, w I wish I had you know one more draft because there's just a few things that I think that I could have articulated better or structured better, and I think that you know if I just started writing it a little bit earlier that that maybe I would maybe I would have had the time to do that. So while I was I was generally happy with um you know how I went about writing the thesis you know I think that the best piece of advice I could give myself is give myself is just start writing as soon as you can um, because uh, it just helps you enormously um, to, to go through a number of different drafts and, and go through those iterations. And um, I suppose the other thing is is just briefly, I mean, um, I sort of deployed quite a, I, I sort of used Excel a lot to um, record my notes and uh, that's not a very good program for doing that. I, I would probably have tried to learn um, some proper database software um, because I think it's it's maybe an overlooked um, element of writing history um, is how you make sense of your notes. And I think a lot of historians maybe don't think of themselves as IT people or, or tech people, but I think that there's a lot of value in, in sort of learning those kinds of skills um, in terms of coordinating your notes. So yeah, I think th those are the two things that I sort of, you know, wish that I'd maybe done um, a little bit more precisely. Well, some of us became historians to live in the past, but um, I completely <laughs> agree with you on the writing front. I think anyone contemplating a master's uh, should heed to that advice because it can consume an infinite amount of time and the sooner you start, <laughs> the sooner infinity is over, perhaps. Mm. Okay, let, let's move towards the subject of salient in the 1980s. Could you give us a brief overview of the life of salient towards the 1980s? Uh, when, when exactly did salient start? Yeah, so salient was founded in 1938 and it was um, really the, bain, the brainchild of um, A.H. Uh, Bonk Scotney, mm -hmm. um, who, uh, you know, as I understand it, he basically saw the the available student media on campus and felt that it was a little bit too dour and unpolitical. Um, you know, there were a couple of other student student publications floating around, right. um, and his view was that salient, well, Victoria University really needed a student voice that was political and was um, quite radical. So he was he was actually, um, I believe, a communist or or at least had communist sympathies. And uh, you know a lot of what animated him to found the um, found Salient was to bring that perspective um, to to campus and to sort of um, write about things from a sort of a um, a, a labour and communist perspective, I suppose. And so it sort of had these like relatively radical um, origins. Um, it was not the only publication on campus. Um, for quite a while, um, there was uh, also the Spike, which was more of a literary magazine than a than a current events 
publication in the way that Salient was sort of intending to be. But they both coexisted quite happily until the early 1960s. Um, they were both quite sporadic back then. You know, Salient didn't settle into a sort of a weekly rhythm um, until uh, I think the late 1960s. Um, and so, the, you know, they, it would publish maybe seven or eight issues per year um, with a variety of sort of political analysis. And then Spike kept on doing its thing of publishing poetry and and um, essays and and uh, fiction writing. Um, and then once Spike wrapped up, um, Salient sort of um, blossomed into this um, into this uh, weekly publication that um, uh, was sort of the de facto student voice on campus um, uh, with, with no other competition, I suppose. And so, you know, it had quite radical origins, but it ended up, um, you know, in, 1950s and, in the 1950s and 1960s, Fuser and Salient in general had a bit of a more more of a conservative character it was sort of more concerned with um campus news you know what what's going on on campus what courses are available things that may be political but only from a sort of educational lens i suppose and so for a while that was sort of it moved away from those um those origins and and was sort of a bit more of a um a record of what was happening on campus and less sort of a political thing in the late 1960s you know the sort of the wave of uh, political activism around the world uh reached new zealand and a lot of people who had um come from a sort of activist political frame of reference started to write for salient they started to arrive at university um, and want to sort of reformulate salient and reformulate VUSA, the students association around you know more of a political character and so that was sort of um how it ended up in the 1970s that some of those radical origins were sort of revitalized a lot of the people writing during that time were plugged into trade unionism in wellington plugged into um sort of communist thought in wellington and sort of had this very international international perspective as well as covering uh local issues that sort of intersected with their priorities and their um sort of radical lens and countercultural lens and so that's sort of where it came from up to the 1980s and uh, by the dawn of the 1980s you know the um a, a sort of a wave of quite radical students had partaken in salient and by the dawn of the 1980s things are sort of starting to um, shift away from that strain of radicalism that strain of progressivism and uh, uh, a lot of those people move on. A lot of those people become, uh, you know, graduate and go elsewhere. And it's different. There's sort of a little bit of a changing of the guard in the in the early 1980s. I mean, dour and apolitical. I don't think that's a, a phrase that many people would use to describe uh, salient in, in, <laughs> in our time. Um, mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that transition then? I mean, there is this obviously a cultural turn. Uh, going through the 70s and the 80s and as the political landscape shifts and as a new generation uh, comes of age. But how does that play out within Salient? I mean, what kind of turnover is there in editorial ship? Or, or is this connected to the changing nature of who's editing Salient? Or is it part of the larger social change or something in between? I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, the Salient editor really changed, you know, almost every year. There's only, in the period that I was looking at, there are only two instances where someone stayed on for longer than a year. And so in general, there's a very um, high turnover. And mm -hmm. so I think that people sort of come in waves, you know, people come in as undergraduates, they um, in their first year maybe get a taste for writing a little bit of copy for Salient. 
that leads to maybe in their second and third year writing quite a lot for Salient, and then maybe once they graduate, they um, stick around to, to be the editor or to be the technical editor, and then they go off and do something else. And so there's sort of like a bit of a cycle of every three to four years, there's a bit of a changing of the guard. And so I think that's part of it, is that in the, in the early 1980s, a lot of those people simply had moved on. They were, they were doing other things, they weren't necessarily in Wellington anymore, and they'd kind of moved on from Salient, and new people were, were taking the reins. But I think there was also sort of a, a, bit of a, changing, a bit of a changing political context as well. And even just in, in Vusa, the, there was sort of like quite a close relationship between Salient and Vusa in terms of, poli- you know, the political views of the people who were participating in Salient and participating in Vusa were quite closely aligned for a lot of the 1970s. Not not perfectly aligned by any means, but, um, you know, fellow travelers by um, um, certainly, whereas by the early 1980s, there was a bit more of a conservative or not even necessarily conservative, but a bit left, you know, people who are a bit frustrated with uh, the sort of like often, you know, radically left wing character of Salient and of Vusa that they felt was not representing them as students. You know, they didn't believe in these things, even if they were progressive, they maybe weren't quite, um, you know, on the same path in terms of like, you know, where they where that progressivism came from um, and some people you know were a bit more conservative maybe a bit more right-leaning and they felt that these institutions were not serving them well they were sort of um, they were giving a perspective that they didn't identify with and um, they were frustrated with and so particularly in VUSA, VUSA becomes a lot more moderate and a lot more um, even in some years a, a lot more conservative in terms of the political views that it would uh, settle on and express and so the the, the sort of the, the whole nature of that relationship changes, um, and uh, so I think that was part of it as well. Is there, there was a bit of a divergence of of the sort of interest of Salient and the interests of USA, which sort of changes the nature of of um, of you know what Salient is able to do. Um, which isn't to say that it was sort of being censored by these people, but there was just a bit less of a, a cordial relationship, which I think sort of distracted um, from from uh, you know some of what Salient had been able to do in the 1970s. I see. Uh, and drilling down on the matter of who the people were producing salient through the 1980s, I have a test for you. A media scholar once pondered to what extent any media production was produced by crusaders, what he termed crusaders, people fired by a cause in the heart and thunder in the soul, or what he termed organ grinders monkeys, in which the agenda is set by deadlines and editorial lines. He concluded, probably safely and probably accurately, that most endeavours will contain some measure of both, for better or worse. How should we think of people who produced Salient in the 1980s? Towards Crusaders? Towards organ grinders monkeys? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that in the case of Salient, probably still a bit of both, but I think probably more towards um, to, towards Crusaders, really, because I think the sort of the interesting thing about student media um, in general, and certainly Salient um, in particular, is that it's not really beholden to the same incentives as as the mainstream media or even necessarily other, you know, underground press publications, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of its funding came from Vusa and from students. And so, while it did run a lot of ads, it didn't have to necessarily rely on that um, to to sustain the to sustain its sustain its publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what that does is that it it opens up uh, the editor the sort of more or less do whatever they want um, because they're, they're not really beholden to a financial incentive in the same way that they would be if they actually had to sell copies of Salient because it was a free product. You know, it was sort of like, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, you know, too bad. I, I already got your money and so I'm just going to keep doing what I think. 
And so the people who I'm, I'm um, sure no editor of Salient has ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. You know, they, they were they were they were certainly sensitive to um to student opinion, but I think they did sort of like they they had a lot of they had a long leash to do the things that they wanted to do with the magazine in a particular year. And what that means, I think, is that when they the, the sort of the diehards, you know, the editors, the the sub editors, and the people who from week to week are contributing a lot of content and a lot of their time to the magazine, you know, did so because they were motivated by the things that they thought were important or the things that they wanted students to care about and they were, they were frustrated that students didn't care about them and they think, oh gosh, you know, I have this platform and I, I really want to use it to sort of animate students to, to encourage them to see themselves as political and to see themselves as being part of something that can, you know, improve our society. And so they, I think they were bringing a lot of their own perspective and a lot of their own agenda to the things that they were writing about. And so I think that um, there is something unique about student media in terms of having that freedom. And so the people who end up doing it, as I said, you know, often, you know, not for any money and, and often, you know, sort of like um, somewhat thanklessly, they end up doing a lot of reporting and writing about things that they, you know, truly believe is really important and that they don't have the platform to say anywhere else. That being said, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of content which was clearly sort of put in at the last minute because they needed to fill out a page or, um, you know, slightly marginal content that maybe um, if they had a, a, a tighter schedule, sorry, a, a less tight schedule, they, they may not have had to um, run with. You know, there was certainly a lot of people working in the in the background who maybe only contributed one or two things um, a year or one or two things a week or whatever, who sort of also helped the engine tick over in terms of having enough content to publish, in terms of putting together a finished product, who might, you know, there's sort of this great ad um, from the late 1970s where they are sort of trying to encourage people to help out with selling it. You know, they were trying to get new recruits and they used this great line, which I which I really liked, which was sort of, you know, even if you just come in to proofread a couple of lines or even just do some dishes, you know, that is helpful. And so there was certainly a lot of people sort of... Uh, uh, supporting salient in, in very small ways, um, which helped bring it all together. And so, you know, I think it's probably a mixture of both, but I, I think that student media has this sort of unique position where people who are really, really fired up about something have like quite a unique platform to um, to talk about the things that they hear about. Well put. Okay, let's move into the era and its issues. Obviously the 1980s are a time of major events, reforms and social changes. And there are many possibilities to choose from, but can you talk us through how one of these issues of the age plays out from the vantage point of salient? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first the first thing that really occurs to me in terms of that era, you know, the, de the defining issue of that era for students was, um, you know, the changing nature of tertiary education policy and how how universities are funded and how students engage with with universities and how they fund their their own studies. Towards the end of the 1970s, there were sort of starting to be whispers of, you know, that perhaps uh, the government was going to start to charge students for for their studies in some fashion. You know, it was like not exactly clear what that was going to look like, but there was sort of it started to be um, a live issue that perhaps the um, the status quo that had existed really since the early 1950s when universities were, were expanded quite considerably and um, in their scope and in terms of what they were meant to accomplish that that status quo was was under threat that students were going to have to start stumping up more of their own money in order to pay for their studies that that universities were going to start getting less funding 
and so salient was was very involved in in, in a, a campaign called education fight back which ran um from the late 1970s to the early 1980s and that seemed you know that maybe at that stage it seemed like a possibility but not a certainty and so it was not necessarily the main issue of that period. In the early 1980s, the government started to really put a bit more meat on the bones in terms of, you know, what this might actually look like. They sort of floated like a graduate tax, floated the possibility of student loans, um, floated the possibility of putting up fees and not covering that increase um, and, you know, expecting students to start to pay some of that. And so that really became a major, major issue for Salient um, in the 1980s because, you know, the, the sort of the 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 moment of, um, you know, the pivotal moment, I suppose, was in 1984, you know, the national government has voted out, of course, all, you know, self-respecting left-wing students, very, very happy about this. Robert Muldoon is gone, you know, he's sort of, um, he's the old guard, he's he's old New Zealand, he's old news, and sort of, um, if he's public enemy number one, then public enemy number two is Merv Wellington, the, the Minister of Education, um, you know, the subject of a lot of um, uh, salient grief in the early 1980s, who was sort of the one sort of pitching these, these ideas that, um, tertiary education was no longer going to be free and that your bursaries were going to be cut at, cut down and etc. And so, you know, 1984, the editorial written on the election night was sort of, you know, jubilant, um, you know, absolute, absolutely ecstatic that Move Wellington's gone, Muldoon's gone, Labour government back in power, finally we have a government that's going to respect students and, and you know, get things back on the right track. It becomes quite apparent quite quickly that is not necessarily what's going to happen, that actually this is a very different Labour government that is um, threatening to cut a lot of the sort of the, the services like education, like like benefits, like state industries. And that sort of creates a lot of a lot of anguish and a real sense of betrayal um, amongst um, students, at least from the perspective of salient. You know, they, they feel that this is, you know, we, we thought we were in safe hands and, and now it turns out that actually all of these issues that were pitched in the early 1980s are actually being picked up by this government and um, you know, reformulated around maybe a slightly different calculus, but nevertheless, the the um, direction is the same. We're heading towards user pays education, and so that really came to dominate a lot of what Salient was writing about because you know it seemed like this existential threat to to the status quo that students had enjoyed. It became sort of this thing that couldn't be ignored. It was too big to ignore, and so Salient and for that matter, Vusa sort of um, reformulated themselves around writing about those issues quite a lot. And uh, it became, you know, this this massively animating issue for basically every editor of Salient from about 1983, 1984. Um, the main thing that they were writing about, by no means the only thing, but definitely the main thing they were writing about was pushing against education cuts, pushing against education reform, and trying to get students to realize that they were sort of having the rug pulled out from underneath them and that they needed to care about this and they needed to show up to protests and, and they needed to be, um, you know, lobbying parliament to not to do this. And so that was sort of really the main issue of the 1980s that comes through in Salient really strongly. And obviously, uh, Rogernomics is a major aspect of the history of that time. Mm. What would be another issue that played out in Salient? In many ways, a lot of the things that it reported on the 1970s carried over in, in one form or another, sort of, you know, feminist issues, things to do with um, uh, sort of workers' rights and, um, uh, you know, things of that nature, um, you know, anti, anti-Vietnam War, you know, the anti-apartheid action was was still very much part of what salient was concerned with um but i think one thing that sort of really developed in 1980s was 
uh, in the 1980s was pushing for homosexual law reform. So this was something that had really only cropped up very briefly and quite sporadically in the 1970s, um, at least as far as I could tell that it was really only when there was something happening in the news that Sailing would report on these things, whereas in the 1980s, this obviously becomes a really, really big issue with the um, homosexual law reform bill going through Parliament in 1985, but also sort of debate in the preceding years about you know, the rights of, of gay people and, and the rights of, um, you know, their rights to to exist and to um, um, enjoy all the benefits that other people are able to. So that became a really big um, area of reporting. In the lead up to the passage of the Homosexual Law Reform Bill, the editor in that year, 1985, um, Jane Hurley, was you know a real champion for that. She did it. She dedicated a lot of her editorials to you know to encourage students to um, do their bit to sort of help it pass, to to change people's minds, to um, lobby their MPs to to vote for the bill, and also reported a lot on sort of you know uh, as things were happening um, across that year, you know they reported a lot on sort of the, the the changing nature of um, of that debate and you know things that were happening that were important. Um, but even more than that, I think that the the thing across the 1980s in terms of that particular issue is that um, there was just a lot more sort of proactive uh, engagement with homosexuality and with homosexual students. You know, from the very early 1980s, there was a, a regular column which had a number of different names. I think it sort of settled on the name Out on Campus, which invited students who identified as gay or as lesbian to, to discuss, you know, their experiences and their, um, uh, you know, their sort of what they wanted from their fellow students to do to support them. And so it's sort of like... There was a lot of content which the intention was really to um, just normalize uh, homosexuality, to encourage students to, you know, see that this was not something that was um, bad or scary or that in any way affected them, but was just totally normal and um, was not something to be afraid of. Um, which I think was like quite a, you know, probably at the time was quite a, um, you know, un, not necessarily unheard of, but was probably quite an important um, contribution to to what was, you know, a very um, a very fractious time for for people who identified as as homosexual. And so, um, I think that sailing in a lot of ways, um, sort of actually um, contributed quite positively to that um, to that strand of of activism and that strand of 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 thinking. It, it sounds very familiar to many um, points that have been pursued in the Rebellious Minds series that um, things that have been on the margins have crept forward and there have been various mechanisms by which they've moved from, from margin to centre. Mm. Uh, it's fascinating to hear Salient being a part of that. Your study ends with the decade in 1989, but your own experience with Salient includes your own more recent involvement. Can you give us a rundown on what your relationship with Salient has been? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I always really enjoyed reading Salient as an undergraduate student. And when I decided that I wanted to write about Salient, I thought, you know, I, I, it would be imprudent of me to write about something that I had no personal engagement with. And so I wrote to the editor in 2018, um, Louise Lynn, and said, you know, look, I'm writing about this. I'm writing about Salient. Would you like me to contribute something? I'd, I'd be very happy to, to to write something for Salient this year, or or to do some reporting, blah blah blah. And she pitched a really fantastic idea, which didn't even occur to me, which is why don't I write sort of a historical column called From the Archives, where I sort of just write about the history of Salient. And that was a really really brilliant idea because it's sort of um, you know I think I mentioned earlier that 
there was a lot of really fun kind of interesting detail that wasn't necessarily that valuable in terms of what I was interested in writing about in the thesis, but was funny or or silly or, or kind of like insightful in its own way. And so a lot of that sort of stuff that I hoovered up but didn't really have anything to do with made its way into this, you know, this fortnightly column that I that I produced, which was really fun because it meant it sort of allowed me to flex a sort of a slightly different writing muscle. It was, you know, it was fun to... You know, I tried to make it funny and to make it, you know, a bit light. You know, I, I did try my hand at sort of short form, serious historical analysis. I don't know if it really worked that well. I think the ones that were funny and, and, and light were, I think, a lot more successful. But it was a really good creative outlet because it meant that I had all this content that um, even if it wasn't going to go into the thesis, it was sort of it would find its way into the public domain somehow, a lot of it. And so I really enjoyed writing that, and I ended up writing that in 2019 as well. After I'd finished my master's, I, I kept that column going for the rest of that year. Um, and so I was really grateful for the opportunity to contribute to Salient because um, it really gave me a sense of, you know, how it's put together these days, and it allowed me to sort of, like, get some insight into what's changed and what's stayed the same, and also just the, the sense of community that sort of, like, conglomerates around Salient. Because it was, yeah, it was really, really fun. I met a lot of really nice people and, um, you know, went to a lot of, like, really fun events that um, we would organize for end of term or after particularly big issues or, you know, et cetera. You know, there was just a lot of, like, it was really fun to be part of that community and to sort of contribute to it. And so, yeah, it was a really, really positive experience. You know, I, I maybe wish that I had gotten involved with Salient sooner than I did because it was a really, really welcoming environment. It was really fun to to contribute to it, and it was the first time that I'd ever written anything that more than a, a small handful of people would read. You know, when you when you're an undergraduate student, you you write your essays, and maybe your tutor reads them, and maybe um, your friends read them if you're getting them to do proofreading, whatever. Um, but it was a really kind of scary, but also awesome feeling to like have people come up to me and say, oh, I read your column this week. It was really funny. Or, or I read your column this week and I, I didn't think it was so good. Here's what I would um, do differently. Both of those experiences were kind of surreal, but very, very fun to to have that kind of creative outlet that and, and realize that actually people read it and um, respond to it and think that it's interesting or think that it's not very good, but that's that's fine because it's like enjoyable to get that kind of feedback as well and so yeah it was it was a really really cool thing and you know I don't know that there's really many other places that you can kind of just be kind of playful with that kind of writing um so one thing that I think is really valuable about student media is that you can kind of just try those kinds of concepts out and um and play with the concept as you go and then sort of develop it into something and an environment that's really relatively low stakes, but which you still, you know, you you feel motivated to do a good do a good job because you want to create something that is that is interesting and that that students can kind of see themselves in and and will you know hopefully hopefully enjoy reading. So, yeah, I think it's a really really wonderful thing about student media, and I was really really grateful to to get to partake in that. Max, thank you for your time and insight today. It's been a fascinating conversation. And if you've enjoyed this, why not check out Max's thesis, An Organ of Student Opinion, or drop by the salient offices and do some dishes. I'm sure the crew there will welcome you. Again, this podcast was produced as part of the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies Rebellious Minds Seminar Series.